The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Luke. Glory to you, Lord Christ. Then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. Behold, I'm sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Then he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. As we remain standing, let me pray. Lord God, we thank you for your gospel word, for the hope of resurrection, and for the fact that Jesus now reigns in heaven above all. Amen. Please be seated. I want to ask Bishop Terrell Glenn to join me here. It is uh, a real pleasure and a real treat to be able to introduce Terrell to you all. Uh, I have known Terrell since I was a toddler. Um, uh, he was, uh, well, I'll, I won't explain anymore, we'll leave it a mystery, but I've known Terrell since I was a toddler and he was a student and it has been fun to come back under his leadership here in the Carolinas. Many of you will know that Terrell and his wife Teresa planted Church of the Apostles here in Raleigh back in the year 2000. Uh, since then, they moved on to plant a church in Houston. Uh, Terrell was consecrated as a bishop in 2008, came back to the Carolinas in 2017 as an assisting bishop, working with Steve Wood, who is our diocesan bishop down in South Carolina. And then two years ago, Terrell and Teresa moved back to Raleigh, where he now serves as area bishop over the churches in North Carolina. So it's great to have you back in Raleigh. It's great to have you here this morning. And let me pray for you before you preach. Lord God, speak to us now through Terrell. Take the words he's prepared and plant them in our hearts. And there, by the power of your Holy Spirit, use your word to transform us, that we might look more and more like your Son, our Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, thank you for that, John. It is indeed a pleasure and a privilege to be here with you. I have enjoyed watching what God has done with this parish family. From the very beginnings of coming together wondering if this is what God indeed would have you do, and then with extraordinary confidence moving into the will of God and seeing his blessing and his favor abound. Uh, John is right, we have known each other for a while, however, if you're looking for dirt, I don't have it. Um, but I need to say this, I am grateful to the Yates family because they are a huge part of my spiritual heritage. I cringe to say the number, but 49 years ago, Sitting at a beach retreat on the coast of South Carolina, I heard the gospel for the first time under the ministry of John and Susan Yates, John's mom and dad. And what is so often the prayer of believing parents that their children 
will have a faith that exceeds their own. That has surely happened in the Yates family, and I see it in you, John. It's an honor to be here. And so if I would ask you to pray with me, grant, Lord God, that my message and my speech might not be in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of your spirit and of your power, that our faith might not rest on the wisdom of a man or a woman, but on the power of God. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. This morning, we remember a hugely significant event in salvation's story. It could be called, in fact, the very climax of the salvation story. Yet, it's an event that has grown to be largely ignored. Ignored, actually, by the church, and therefore not very well described by the church to the world the ascension of Jesus. We celebrate it today on a Sunday. It actually, the feast day was Thursday, but the lectionary allows us to move that feast to celebrate when we gather for worship the Sunday after, celebrating that event on the 40th day after Jesus' resurrection. It's interesting. In our culture, Christmas, it gets its notice, right? The world even gets in on it. Everything from presents to lights to trees to Santa, poinsettias, cards, the whole bit. And Easter, the world gets in on that one. Bunnies and pastel-colored eggs and candy and lilies. But how about the ascension? Have you ever heard an advertisement for that big ascension day sale at Dillard's? It's just not going to happen. But the day marks a tremendous moment in God's plan for our salvation and the display of his glory. And just as Luke describes Jesus coming to earth as God to become a human being, a physical body, so Luke makes sure to describe the way that Jesus left this earth with a physical body. How significant is this to Luke? Well, think of it this way. Luke actually ends his gospel account with the story of the ascension. And then volume two, the book of Acts, he begins the book of Acts with a description of the ascension. If you pay close attention to Peter's Pentecost sermon recorded in Acts chapter two, it's really not so much a sermon about the Holy Spirit, though it's involved. It's not having a primary focus on the resurrection, though that's talked about it. Essentially, the Pentecost sermon of Peter is a sermon about Jesus' ascension and what that has occurred because of his taking place ruling on the throne. The cross and resurrection, essential, vital for our salvation. But the cross and the resurrection without Jesus' ascension is a bit like a great, masterful, orchestral piece of written music. The best ever composed, but never played, never heard. The, the cross and the resurrection without the ascension is like a sumptuous banquet spread out before us with all the great delicacies, delicious edibles that we can enjoy, all the flavors that would thrill our palate, all put out on a table 
but with no one to eat it. It's like a great house with so many rooms and features and details that's available, but nobody moves in. You see, it's the ascension that takes that this, the event that takes everything that Jesus did and everything Jesus was and releases it into the universe, into your life with all of its power, its healing, its saving and enabling, the ascension. So what are we, what are we to make of it? This story of Jesus somehow leaving physically from this earth to go to heaven. Well, I want us to see three things very quickly. I want us to see the power of it, the presence through it, and the petition by it. First, the power of it. Now, Jesus had appeared to his disciples numerous times over a 40-day period since the day of the resurrection. He had shown himself not as some disembodied spirit, but actually as a physical presence. John had told me that y'all have spent some time here recently in 1 Corinthians 15 as you've looked at the good, the very good of what God has created with our bodies. And so we see in the resurrection that the encounter with Jesus was with this physically resurrected body. It was this same Jesus who lived and died before them. He was the same, but he was somehow different. His flesh had not been merely resuscitated, but rather in the resurrection it had been changed, transformed. But it was his body that was transformed and glorified. Paul does describe it in 1 Corinthians 15 that way as this seed planted and a plant comes, both interrelated but distinct nonetheless. And he taught them. He opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And then he charged them to wait. Though they were filled with the exuberance of joy, knowing that Jesus was alive, Jesus knew that for them just to go out and proclaim it, it would fall flat on its face apart from the empowering of the Spirit. So he tells them to wait until the Spirit will come. So when we look at the text of Luke and Acts, we read these things, that Jesus blessed his disciples and then parted from them and was carried up into heaven. That's Luke. And then in Acts, Luke adds this, and when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. Now you'll notice this in the Bible from time to time, that the presence of God is often typified, often expressed with a cloud, symbolized by a cloud. Think of it. Back when Moses was leading the Hebrews throughout the wilderness, it was a cloud by day pillar of fire by night, the presence, the visible presence of God leading his people in the wilderness. When Moses climbed Sinai to meet with God to receive the, Holy, the, the Ten Commandments, it's a cloud that envelops Moses, the presence of God. And even in Jesus' own transfiguration, as he climbs up the mountain with Peter, James, and John, they are overshadowed by a cloud. And from that cloud, they hear this voice, this is my son whom I love. Listen to him. The cloud. 
the presence of God. The image here is unmistakable. The image here is of Jesus leaving the presence, the physical presence with his physical presence leaving and being enveloped by the presence of God and then disappearing from their sight. So that with Jesus, he ascends to the realm of heaven as the unique God-man. And he takes his place as a new king, as the king of creation. In other words, Jesus didn't merely stop showing up. It wasn't a matter of somehow fading into the crowd. You didn't hear the disciples say, anybody seen Jesus lately? No. Luke makes sure that we get the picture. He departed. This is precisely what Paul, when he writes Ephesians chapter 1, verses 19 and following, is talk about, talking about this ascended Jesus going up into heaven, being in the very throne room and being seated in glory. He writes that you may know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the age to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all them to, to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And as a result, this ascended Jesus is supreme in his power. All authority, all rule, all dominion under his feet as he is seated, enthroned. Do you realize what this means? It means that if you belong to him, if you've turned to Christ in faith, it means that all that ever happens to you in this life will ultimately happen for your benefit. That if in fact God has put all things under his feet and has given him as head over all things to the church, then he who has demonstrated himself as undeniably for you will not let anything happen to you that he cannot also use for you and your good. His position with power to make it ultimately a great good. That's why the Apostle Paul can be so bold and so confident to write Romans 8.28. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him and have been called according to his purpose. You know, if you think of that verse, we know that in all things God works for the good. Well, on the one hand, some of that makes sense. We know that in all the good things of life that happen, God can use that for my good. Makes sense, right? But that's not what Paul wrote. He said, we know that in all things, you have to love Paul's language. All things conclude, includes everything, good and bad, beautiful and ugly, heroic and tragic. He can use it all. It's not like me. Whenever something breaks and is busted, I get a broom. Get rid of it, let's get a new one. Oh, if things are good and sturdy and still whole, we can keep using it. 
But that's not the picture being painted here by Paul's words. All things can be worked together for our good. What an amazing statement. That there's nothing that he cannot use for your benefit as we entrust it to him. And he uses it for our good. Jesus now uses even the bad for our good. The ultimate defeat of evil is to use it to bring about the greatest good that could ever happen. And that's exactly what we see in the cross. It is nothing more vile, evil, despicable, or ugly than the crucifixion of the Son of God. And God doesn't get a celestial broom and brush that off of the stage of history. No. In fact, he uses it. It is the very substance that he uses to bring about the greatest good. The salvation of humanity to his own glory. So let me just ask this. If he can do that with that, imagine what he can do with our hurts, with our frustrations, with our tragedies, with our difficulties. That's the power of the ascension. There's also a presence through it. The ascension also means that Jesus is uniquely available. There's a presence that is coming to us because of the ascension. In the ascension, Jesus left this earth. He left the time-space continuum. It's hard to know to describe where he went in terms of time and space. We think of it in terms of the heavens being above us and what's beyond the galaxies. and Beyond what we can see, that must be heaven. And that's not exactly what it's describing. Perhaps it might be best to think of it as dimensions that just as we understand the dimensions of, of this physical life, there are others. And heaven is perhaps yet another unseen dimension that is fully present here that we just can't take in. In his ascension, Jesus left this time-space continuum and goes into the presence of God. And in so doing, he is no longer limited to being in one particular place at one particular time. Before the ascension, if you wanted to be with Jesus, you had to be with Jesus. You had to sit with him, you had to walk with him, you had to eat with him if you wanted to be with Jesus. But Jesus in his ascension, he returns to the Father as the Son of God, and he also returns as a human being, glorified body from the resurrection but now glorified in heaven. And as a result, he can be everywhere and anywhere fully present at the same time with his flesh still in heaven. In John chapter 20, we read Jesus encountering Mary after his resurrection. She goes to the tomb, doesn't find his body there, is terribly upset, and then bumps into Jesus thinking he's the gardener. And as she encounters Jesus, she asks, where have you put him? We can't find him. And then Jesus says this, Mary. 
And immediately she recognizes him. She reaches for him and says, Rabboni, and grips him and embraces him and won't let go. In fact, we know she won't let go because of what Jesus says next. He says to her, Mary, do not cling to me, for I've not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father, your Father, to my God and your God. Now, I want us to get this picture right. When, when it, Jesus says, don't cling to me, don't, don't imagine that awkward embrace that you experienced as a child from an overzealous aunt or uncle to give you affection that you can't get out of. No. No, it's far different than that. If you want to know what that embrace was like, imagine a mom or a dad in Uvalde, Texas standing outside of a building in which he or she hopes their elementary school child is alive. And that child comes out and that parent embraces that child with so strong an embrace as if to say, I have you back and I will never let you go. That's how Mary was clinging to Jesus. As if he said, you thought you lost me. I know, Mary, you're afraid to let me go. But it's as if he also was saying, let me ascend and you'll never be without me again. If I ascend, no one can ever take me from you is really what Jesus is saying to her. That what he is then, all that he is, will be everywhere for all to know. A presence in the ascension. And lastly, a petition from it. In the letter, in the, the writer of the letter to the Hebrews writes this in chapter seven. Consequently, as Jesus, as our great high priest has entered into the throne room of God, he is able to save to the uttermost all those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Do you see the picture we have of the ascended Christ is that of all the things he does, one of the chief things is that he continually intercedes for us. He makes petition for us. The scriptures speak of him as advocating, like an attorney interceding for us. He is described as our eternal advocate, our true representation in flesh before the very throne of the universe. And do you realize what that means? It means that if you and I have identified with Jesus, it doesn't matter what you've done, it doesn't matter what you've, what you've been, it doesn't matter how horribly you messed up in life. As you come to faith in Christ, when the eyes of God look at you, they see the ascended Jesus who stands as, his, as our advocate, representing us, human flesh. I love the way that Tim Keller puts it. And as Jesus stands there with his nail-scarred hands, he makes a plea, but it is no plea for mercy. It is a plea for justice. Because the mercy was shown on the cross as what we deserved was given to Jesus. We were shown such mercy. 
But now as the ascended, risen Christ, he stands with those scars that plead justice. Do you realize what that means? So often I think that when we go to God asking for forgiveness, we think that in fact as we ask, God has to take a moment to think about it. God, will you please forgive me? And I know it's been really big this time. I know it's horrible. I, I know I should be, feel guilty for years. But will you forgive me? And we assume he has to decide. Now, you may smile at that. I do. But I've got to be honest. It is the way I think sometimes. But don't you see? With the physically ascended Jesus, with the nail scars made perfect in his hands, it is a constant advocacy for the fruit of his cross, a constant statement. There is no new decision that has to be made. It has already happened. You are forgiven. Infinitely powerful, fully present, complete petition. Because of his power in heaven and his declaration of being for you, there's nothing that he will not make right, not even the worst tragedy that he will not make right one day. And because of his presence in heaven as the God-man, he can fill all things, always fully present everywhere, even in our most confusing times and most lonely moments. And because of the ascension, we have through him one who advocates for us eternally. He is so radically with us, representing us before the Father, interceding for us always. No wonder, no wonder, as Luke describes it at the end of the gospel, when they saw Christ ascend, it says this, and they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. A power, a presence, and a petition. Eternally on our behalf. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that on this day we would be impressed all the more deeply with the glory of what you have done in showing who you are. We thank you for the ascension of our Savior Jesus into his rightful place at your right hand and for the ministry he continues on our behalf because of his great love for us. Give us grace to rejoice in you and to live as those who are redeemed and empowered to tell others. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.